Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to have some straight talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is a collective group of local Baptist churches who partner together for both missions and education. And there's a rich history, a lot to talk about, but there's also some issues related to modern controversies that we need to be made aware of, especially as it pertains to this upcoming presidential election that's coming up this summer in the month of June at the annual meeting. Now, as I begin this podcast, I'm quite aware of the fact that G3 and the G3 audience is made up of a a lot of people, a diverse group of people that are both within the SBC and outside of the SBC. So I want to just give a little bit of a backdrop of the history of G3 as it pertains to the Southern Baptist Convention. So I currently serve as the pastor of an SBC church. It's uh, on the west side of Atlanta, Georgia, Praise Mill Baptist. It's 179 years old. We were constituted in 1842, and that's about roughly three years before the formation of the SBC. Now, G3 was birthed out of this church. And so as I think about my own life, my own Christian walk with the Lord, I've been a member of three churches in my entire life, and I've pastored all three of those churches. So in God's providence, I grew up here in this local church. And after I became a Christian and sensed a call to ministry, I was sent out to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for education. It was during my time there that I was called to pastor a small church just south of the city, in fact, about 50 miles south of the city of Louisville. And so, again, a Southern Baptist church, and there I am as a, as a Southern Baptist student, and I'm called to pastor that church. I would serve that church for about four years, and then I would be called to pastor a church in Middle Tennessee when I entered the doctoral program. I served another SBC church in Tennessee. And so after a few years there, I was in God's providence called back home where my wife and I both grew up as children to serve this church, this local church here. And so here we are now, um, 179 years old and predating the SBC, but we have historically partnered with the SBC for missions and for education. And that's a wonderful thing. We'll talk a little bit about some of the benefits of the SBC uh, later on in this in this very episode, but we as a local church have had to make some difficult decisions through the years. We have chosen to pull back our engagement on a local level, on a state level, and even a national level as it pertains to the cooperative program and other uh, engagement opportunities as an SBC church. And for what reason? Well, for theological reasons, and for philosophical reasons, and for conscience reasons. And some of those we'll actually discuss in this episode. But let's talk a little bit about the SBC. The SBC was constituted in 1845 in Augusta, Georgia. Again, there was a a division between the Northern Baptist and the Southern Baptist, and some of that division was, was over the issue of slavery. And so the SBC was formed and constituted in 1845, and you have a rich history of growth. You have the first 
educational institution was formed, and it was the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It was formed for the very purpose of training ministers and missionaries for the gospel ministry. But over the years, there have been both seasons of growth and health within the life of the SBC, and there have also been seasons of failure and compromise. Uh, Throughout the years, we have seen uh, various different struggles, like the, the, the liberal movement years ago, theological liberals, literally taking the SBC captive. And so the, the major theological institutions that have been formed through the years to train ministers and missionaries were overtaken by, by theological liberals. You had uh, individuals like Molly Marshall teaching at Southern Seminary, literally teaching post-mortem salvation opportunities. She was a full-blown egalitarian, and yet that was an SBC employee. That was an SBC institution and a professor that was being paid by the very offerings of individual SBC churches. But again, this liberal movement didn't just happen overnight. It was, a, it was a process over time. And you can even go back to the modernist controversy and the liberal controversy in England, and you can see that Spurgeon was engaging in this, which also affected a lot of the same theological controversies, eventually affected the SBC. Spurgeon in the downgrade controversy was pushing against these liberals and and he was very forthright and he was bold in his in his stand against these liberals. In fact, I want to read to you just just to give you a little bit of a hint uh, as to Spurgeon's boldness and the way that he approached these issues and as he stood against these liberals in in the downgrade. I want you to hear the voice of Spurgeon as he as he speaks to these issues, as he writes and as he talks and as he preaches against these very liberal threats. Notice what he says here at one point. He says, And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and on this play usurps pulpits, which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted, the inspiration of Scripture is derided, the Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction and the resurrection into a myth. End quote. Now again, Spurgeon is is standing boldly against the theological liberals of his day, but that's not the only thing that Spurgeon would say. He said many other things as well. Listen to what he says here as he as he writes about the downgrade in the churches. He said the following quote. A chasm is opening between the men who believe their Bibles and those who are prepared for an advance upon the Scripture. The house is being robbed. Its very walls are being digged down. But the good people who are in bed are too fond of the warmth to go downstairs to meet the burglars. End quote. That gives you just a little bit of an idea of how Spurgeon approached the issues in his day and how he stood against the, the very liberals of his day. And we must ask an honest question, what does that mean for us in our present day? Now, back to the history of the SBC. So these liberals were influencing, and there was a stream of liberalism that was flowing right into the SBC. And so you had individuals like Crawford Toy, who was a very influential theological pillar, 
and was uh, engaged there and teaching at Southern Seminary. And he actually was at one point engaged to Lottie Moon. And because of his liberalism and because of his rejection and his false views on the atonement, their engagement was severed. And of course, you know the rest of the history and the rest of the story, and that's that Lottie Moon never married, and she ended up dying on the mission field in China. But that's a little bit of a history of how the SBC got to a point progressively, slowly, over time, one professor at a time, teaching uh, pastors and missionaries uh, who would then go out into local churches and influence at a grassroots level their local churches. Over time, you had uh, you know, entire institutions with faculty who were rejecting the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, who were teaching an egalitarian position on women's service within the local church. And that was what predated and preceded what we know as the era of the conservative resurgence or an era known as the battle for the Bible. So years ago, when the SBC had become basically a liberal denomination, you had individuals who were very concerned about the SBC and the stewardship of the educational institutions and and the opportunity to train missionaries and to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so they decided to talk and figure out a plan and figure out, is there a way to salvage this thing? And so you had Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler who met and they had a conversation and they were really in many ways the architects behind that historical movement that we know as the conservative resurgence, where they talked about a plan that would involve electing a conservative Bible-believing president who would be elected for a second term the following year. And during his time in office, he would be charged with the responsibility of replacing or else implementing seats within various different institutions and seminaries uh, on the, the board of trustees. And that it would be over time that those board members would become more and more conservative, and then they would gain control of those institutions, which would allow them to appoint conservative presidents who would then appoint conservative faculty who would then be teaching true sound biblical theology to these young pastors and these young missionaries who would then go out into the grassroots churches and uh, would be leading the churches that we plant here in America and beyond. But yet that process would not just be a two-term process. It would, it would have to go on for a period of about a decade or longer before it would actually gain the momentum to actually turn this large ship known as the SBC in the right direction. Well, as this plan unfolded, these individuals would rally the troops and local churches would send messengers to the convention uh, in the thousands. And so you had, you know, upwards of, you know, 30 and 40,000 people assembling for the SBC annual meeting. Whereas in, in modern days, we, you know, it's, it's a good year if we get 10,000 people there. And so they were coming for the purpose of voting to make sure that, that the conservatives were able to maintain control of the convention so that the liberals would, would not be able to continue their agenda. Well, this conservative resurgence battle for the Bible would continue for, for a good 
number of years and it would be successful. The plan worked. And over time, these institutions were turned around. And I can remember going to Southern Seminary and not knowing much about the history of the convention and actually sitting in a, in a large lecture hall with Russell Moore as my professor. And he showed a documentary. It was a film that was titled Battle for the Minds. And it was made by a liberal filmmaker. And it was to document the quote unquote takeover of Southern Seminary. And so it had a liberal slant to it, but nevertheless, it interviewed many individuals who were responsible for standing firm during those days. And of course, it also documented uh, the, the process by which Al Mohler was brought in as the president of Southern Seminary. And so if you go back and look at the history of this convention, you can see how God spared it from the, the sewer of liberalism. And the conservatives were able to bring back, although with imperfection and everyone, of course, involved in that process were all sinners and no one was perfect in, in all that they did. But as you read the history of this convention, you can see many really good things that happened. And then you can also see a season of failure and compromise and liberalism. And then you can see a resurgence of biblical truth and you can see the blessing of God on institutions. Think about the opportunities of education and missions when groups of churches come together under the banner of the gospel and work together in unity. You think about education. Just from 2018 to 2019, you have 23,818 students that were educated through the SBC. Now, let me just share with you a little bit of the of the benefit of that. If you are a member of an SBC church and you go to one of our institutions, then that's basically a 50% discount because of your church membership in an SBC institution. So you're going to benefit greatly as a result financially, as a result of being able to go into an SBC institution and to receive an education. That has historically been a really, really good thing. And I am the, the beneficiary of that type of sacrifice and that type of financial investment because I'm a two-time graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. When we think of missions from, again, 2018 to 2019, you have roughly 3,500 international missionaries on the field who are being paid by the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. So the collective group of churches partnering together through what's known as the cooperative program and also the uh, offerings that we know as the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and the Annie Armstrong North American Mission offering. And so uh, you have 3,500 overseas missionaries. You have domestic missionaries, about 3,000 of them. And then in the time period of about 2018 to 2019, the records show that there were 552 new churches planted through the SBC. Now, that's something to celebrate, the opportunity to partner together with churches, to work together for the planting of churches, to work together to pay missionaries, both locally and internationally. That's a huge, huge uh, blessing. 
but when we start thinking about the present problems, there are some current problems that need to be addressed. There are issues of, of division over big theological issues, and a couple of those issues need attention and need to be discussed. And we need to, to know, quite frankly, where it is that these candidates who are running for the office of president in 2021 at the annual meeting, when a vote is taken for their presidency, we need to know with the clearest of terms where it is that these men stand on these issues. We have these divisive issues like social justice versus biblical justice. It was in 2019 in Birmingham at the annual meeting in June that Resolution 9 was adopted. And that resolution clearly states that critical race theory and intersectionality should be used as analytical tools for the purpose of gospel ministry. Analytical tools for the purpose of gospel ministry. Just listen to what the resolution actually states. It says, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root causes of the social ills that they identify, which result from sin, yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experiences, end quote. Now, the question should be raised. If critical race theory and intersectionality are actually insufficient alone to diagnose social ills, what about the scriptures? Are the scriptures insufficient alone to diagnose social ills? So in a day where we've actually watched the evangelical world attach woke to church, now the SBC has actually attached woke to the scriptures. Now you actually have to read the scriptures with a little aid from these analytical tools, such as intersectionality and critical race theory, that if we use those and attach them to the scriptures, we're, we're actually going to be able to address the social ills in a much better way in our culture. Well, that's problematic. That's a flat denial of the sufficiency of God's Word. Is the Bible sufficient or is it not? And so once again, as we look back in history at the conservative resurgence days, it was a battle for the Bible. Well, this particular controversy that we're seeing today play its way out in the Southern Baptist Convention is not a different type of controversy, although it goes by a different name and there are many different issues, but it's really the same type of controversy just reincarnated. It is a battle for the Bible. It is a battle for the sufficiency of God's Word. Is the Bible actually sufficient or is it not? Now, social justice is a massive agenda that is crippling and dividing the SBC. And the question mark is still yet to be seen and, and yet to be answered. Will the SBC recover or will it not? Now, another issue that's worth our time and consideration is the issue of women serving as pastors. Women serving as pastors. Now, this is a massive controversy that's raised eyebrows within the SBC in recent days because you have uh, lots of influential voices that have um, shared their opinion far and wide on this issue. One of those individuals goes very deeply within the fabric of the SBC, and her reach is far and wide for sure, and, and that's, of course, Beth Moore. She has 
spoken to groups of college students, and she's spoken and preached in local churches on Sunday mornings to mixed audiences of both men and women and children and entire families. And so she is very much in the vein of the liberal side of the SBC that would suggest that it's proper and fitting for women to actually be preaching to the local church. And so, again, the debate would be, well, as long as she's not a pastor, as long as she's not holding to the office of pastor, which is, biblically speaking, the office of elder, then it's okay if she preaches then, just as long as she's not holding the office of pastor. Well, again, I mean, that that's a long-time controversial issue that's played its way out in the SBC. You have conservative churches, quote-unquote conservative churches for years, who have been giving titles on their websites to women who are leading children's ministries, calling them the, the minister to children within the church, and so on and so forth. So again, how do we use and employ the language of minister, pastor, elder, associate pastor, uh, what does that mean? Well, let's just let's just read from the Baptist Faith and Message. This is the governing document of the SBC, Article 6 on Church, and, and this is what it states, quote, A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture, end quote. So the governing documents of the SBC states emphatically and specifically that the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. So why is it today that we have such a controversial issue related to this very topic? Why is it that there is an agenda to press beyond the biblical mandate for men to be leading local churches as God's Word directs us. Why is it that this is a controversial issue? Currently, and you might be aware of the fact that um, we have been seeing on social media a dust-up where the North American Mission Board has actually funded and given money and resources to the planting of churches that are actually led by and have women as pastors and associate pastors. And so now there's people who are using the distinction between senior pastor and associate pastor. And then again, the, the question mark would be, if you're going to do that, if you're going to make a distinction between senior pastor and associate pastor on the qualification aspect, then that would mean that you're allowing certain women to hold to an office and receive the, the, the freedom to exercise gifts of that office in the local church but you're restricting others simply because of that title, associate. And so this is problematic. But this is not a new thing, because if you'll remember back just some, some time back before COVID hit us, we had the 2020 SBC Pastors Conference controversy where David Youth, the, the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orlando, was elected to serve as the the president of the SBC Pastors Conference, which is typically preceding the annual meeting of the SBC in June each year. And when he announced his lineup of speakers, it was a wide variety of different speakers who were speaking 
in that conference. You had well-known individuals such as David Platt, and you had other individuals uh, that were lesser known, but the ones that caught the most attention were individuals like Hosanna Wong, who's actually a female pastor of a non-Southern Baptist church, who was invited to offer up a spoken word poem in the 2020 SBC Pastors Conference. Now, the reason that that was controversial was was quite obvious. It was because she's a female pastor, and that's a violation of the very governing documents of the SBC. But she's also someone who is not a member of the SBC. So do you see the, the, the disconnect here? You have a conference that's supposed to be for the pastors of the SBC, and yet you're bringing in people to model unbiblical doctrinal distinctives before these pastors. So you have faithful men who have pastored SBC churches for some 20 and 30 years, and they're coming in on an annual basis with their wives and with their children and with their grandchildren. They've just been faithfully serving for all these years. And what do you have up there on the platform, platformed before the SBC and these faithful pastors? You have a woman who is a pastor of a non-Southern Baptist church, that should be like a slap in the face. The question is, what in the world is this conference for? What is it organized for? Is it for the purpose of modeling true expository preaching and biblical theology? And is it to preach Christ and to encourage pastors? Or is it modeling something different? Is it putting on display the drift of the SBC? Well, as we as we know the, the rest of the story, COVID um, canceled the annual meeting of the SBC, and so, of course, the pastor's conference never happened. But yet, in a recent interview with David Youth, you have him asking or being asked the question about the controversy, and then he speaks to the controversy. And I'm going to play a clip just so that you can hear him articulate. It's about two and a half minutes. And so I'm just going to play it in full, and then I'll come back on the other side and I'll comment on it. But Pastor David Youth here, he he gives really a lot of information about not only his own position, but also the the convictions and the drift of a lot of people within the Southern Baptist Convention on this issue related to women preaching and serving in various different capacities. So just listen to what David Youth actually says here. This experience with the pastors' conference didn't wasn't the start of a problem. It was simply a revealing of what was already there. Okay. okay. We have a lot of division in our convention mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, is a woman allowed to speak, mm -hmm. uh, and who who should we listen to or have come speak? What if they believe a little different on this or on that? So, in other words, we are we're independent, autonomous churches. Mm -hmm. which is according to the way the, the convention is structured. I think, however, there were circumstances around last year driven by social media mm -hmm. that maybe highlighted those differences. Okay. And I think it threatened uh, a sense of unity. And so there were people who were really, you know, just saying, we've got to appeal to unity. We've got to, we've got to make sure that we, plan a program that's going to unify us. And they were saying the program I had was not going to unify us. And what I tried to say was 
but not you're not asking for unity you're asking for uniformity mm, okay we've never been a convention of uniformity right you're 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 wise and you're sharp to point out our history and the fact that we've had women before to speak and and it hasn't been that long ago we've had women address our our pastors conference so it wasn't like it, it wasn't like these things were totally foreign to us right. it's just that there just seemed to be a lot of momentum or at least a, a, a push toward everyone believing and doing the same thing okay so the uniformity became real important and that's what i heard in conversations with people um unfortunately <laughs> their definition of uniformity would have been different than you know somebody else or their definition of unity I just feel like that we have to face the reality that we are a convention in a very different world than we were in 1950. And therefore, we have to understand what's happening out there and how are we going to reach this world? How are we going to reach our friends, our neighbors, and the people of this uh, country and beyond? And I think there are people out there doing a good job, but they're not doing it the way we've always done it. Mm -hmm. And we feel threatened by that sometimes. Well, he said an awful lot in that just short little snippet there from that interview, but he talked about unity and uniformity. And he also talked about uh, some issues about how we reach our generation and how we reach people in our present culture. And so as we think about that, we need to be asking honest questions. What does he mean by unity and uniformity? And he says, we've never been a convention of uniformity. Well, the question becomes, what about the Baptist faith and message? Is it, is it actually a, a document that we're bound to? And are we, are we to be operating outside of the boundaries of, of an actual confession of faith or a, a statement of faith? What about Article 6 on the church and when it talks about the office of pastor? And so again, you have these individuals who are seeking to lead outside of the framework of who the Southern Baptist Convention actually was historically. And that's always been a problem and a threat to the SBC. He goes beyond that, though, when he talks about we are no longer a convention of the 1950s. And so we, we need to be thinking about how will we reach this generation today? Well, again, that's that's a question that he's raising on the framework of pragmatism. So in other words, if what he would suggest, and I think that this is what he's saying when he, when he raises this question in this interview, is that what we used to do is not working. And so we've got to be thinking about something new that would work better today that would reach a new generation. Well, that's, that's pragmatism 101. Is the Bible sufficient or is it not? Was it only sufficient for the 1950s? And it, what, what was it only sufficient for, you know, the late 1800s when the SBC was constituted? Or is it sufficient for all generations and all cultures? And, and that's really the question, is it not? And so as we think about these issues like social justice and complementarianism versus egalitarianism, we need to be asking honest questions. What does it mean? What does complementarianism mean? And then the, the issue of the miraculous gifts, continuationism or cessationism. 
And so we're seeing a, a, a constant stream within the SBC through the Acts 29 network and other leaders like J.D. Greer and others who support a continuationist position. And then, of course, Beth Moore and her visions and voices that she hears. And, and of course, her partnership with Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and others. Again, the question becomes, who is the SBC? What direction is the SBC going? And then as we think about the presidential race, we need to be asking the questions to these candidates. There are at present four individuals who have made it known that they intend to run for the office of president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And those individuals include Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. We have Mike Stone, who is a pastor in South Georgia. We have Ed Litton, who is also the pastor of a Southern Baptist church in Mobile, Alabama. And then you have Randy Adams, who is also the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention there in Washington. All four of these individuals have made it known to the convention that they will be running for the office of the president. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they're going to lead in a specific way. It means that they're going to put into motion their various positions on a variety of different issues. But again, we need to be asking these individuals, where do they stand on these very important issues? Where do they stand on the issues of complementarianism? And what does complementarianism mean? And so we need to be asking them to be, to, to be very clear and forthright and open as to where they stand on these issues before we actually support them and plan to vote for them. We should not just be going to vote for a personality. We have to actually vote for the leader who is going to lead with conviction and with biblical clarity. And so I want us, uh, again, just to encourage all of the SBC members who are listening to this podcast to educate yourself well and make sure that you actually vote with biblical conviction this summer as you make your way to the annual meeting in June. In fact, all of these men who are running for the SBC presidential race in 2021 need to make it abundantly clear with specificity of language and with clarity of terms and agenda and ministry philosophy, where do you stand on these issues? And I'm just going to be abundantly clear. If the SBC candidate will not speak clearly and reveal where he stands on issues of critical race theory and intersectionality, and women pastors, then he, in my opinion, is unqualified from teaching a Sunday school class, much less leading the SBC in 2021 and beyond. So we need to be having these honest conversations and asking, where do you stand on these issues? So I want to encourage fellow Southern Baptists that if you are a part of this convention to organize your church, make it possible where you can be present and vote in this upcoming election, have your messengers there, educate yourself on these issues, know where each of the candidates stand, and then vote, and vote with conviction, and make sure that you are voting according to what the biblical text says. Don't just become a follower of a, of a name or of a personality. Don't just vote for someone because you think that they've always historically led appropriately. We can't just assume where people stand today. We have to actually figure it out, and we have to research, and we have to ask questions, and then we have to vote 
in a biblical way. This is a, a very important and a very historical election coming up this June, and so I want to encourage you to pray earnestly and to be present for the vote in Nashville. Now, as we come to a close, I want to read a quote from J. Gresham Machen uh, from his work on Christianity and liberalism. And it speaks to this very important issue because we have a lot of Southern Baptist pastors who are leaving the convention. We have churches that are exiting the SBC because of a, a liberal drift and, and these very important controversies that we're talking about today. He writes, If there ought to be a separation between the liberals and the conservatives in the church, why should not the conservatives be the ones to withdraw? Certainly it may come to that. If the liberal party really obtains full control of the councils of the church, then no evangelical Christian can continue to support the church's work. If a man believes that salvation from sin comes only through the atoning death of Jesus, then he cannot honestly support by his gifts and his presence a propaganda which is intended to produce an exactly opposite impression. To do so would mean the most terrible blood guiltiness which it is possible to conceive. If the liberal party, therefore, really obtains control of the church, evangelical Christians must be prepared to withdraw no matter what it costs, end quote. Well, I do believe that that is an extremely helpful quote from Machen that wraps up and summarizes where I stand and where others, I believe, stand as well, that it may come to the point where evangelical Christians must be prepared to withdraw no matter what the costs. And that means if the leadership of the SBC will continue to promote unbiblical theology and unbiblical ministry philosophies, then we need to be willing to exit the SBC. But we must pray earnestly and work diligently to make sure that that doesn't happen, and we need to vote. But yet, if we continue to see leaders leading in an inappropriate way, then, of course, there should be no shame in exiting the SBC, for it's the SBC that needs us, not us as individual churches and Christians that need the SBC. So may God bless. May you be encouraged in your work within the context of your local church. I want to point you to our website. You can visit g3men.org for blogs, articles, and preaching resources. You can find conference archives there available on the website. And you can also find conference registration for the 2021 G3 National Conference that's going to be held in Atlanta, Georgia, on the theme of Christ. So we want to encourage you to register for that conference and join us in Atlanta this fall. And you can find out more information at g3men.org. May God bless.